0: Instead of addressing the person's argument, what you do is you address a feature of the person that's not relevant to the argument. So you know, to take a stupid person or to, to, to take a stupid example, you know, if you, Lucas, were to say you know, that you think uh, 12 multiplied by 11 equals 132 and you laid out your reasons for that. And I just said, hey, uh, you know, that's the wrong answer. You're just a white guy saying that. So what I'm clearly doing is I'm not addressing your mathematical reasoning and assessing it in its own terms I'm setting that aside and I'm focusing on your skin color which is irrelevant to the quality of your mathematical reasoning.
1: Welcome to the Lucas Grobot show where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth and own the future. I'm your host Lucas Grobot and today we are joined by Dr. Steve Hicks who uh, I am just utterly honored that I get to talk to him today. Dr. Stephen Hicks is a professor of philosophy at Rockford University, Illinois, USA, executive director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship, and a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He has four books, Explaining Postmodernism, Nietzsche and the Nazis, The Art of Reasoning, and Entrepreneurial Living. His writings have been translated into 16 languages: Portuguese, Spanish, Korean, uh, Persian, Polish, Arabic, Ukrainian, many more. He has been published in academic journals such as Business Ethics Quarterly, Teaching Philosophy, and Review of Metaphysics, as well as The Wall Street Journal, Cato Unbound, and The Baltimore Sun. In 2010, he won his university's Excellence in Teaching Award and has been a visiting professor of of Business Ethics at Georgetown University in Washington, DC, a visiting fellow at the Social Philosophy and Policy Center in Bowling Green, Ohio, senior fellow at the Objectivist Center in New York, and the visiting professor at the University of Casimir, the Great Poland. He received his bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Guelph, Canada, and his PhD in philosophy from Indiana University Bloomington, USA. As I mentioned, he is the author of "Explaining Postmodernism." And if there is any book that I think that you should be reading right now in in these days, it is for sure um, Dr. Hicks' book. I have been reading it. I've been telling all of my friends about this book um, that was written 20 years ago, but seems to be so timely for everything that's happening today. So. Dr. Hicks, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show.
0: A uh, real pleasure to connect uh, across the world this way.
1: Now, when we originally connected, uh, the world was a very different place. Right now, we're at June 3rd as this recording. But when we connected, um, the the hot topic of May was um, lockdowns, draconian lockdowns, as some would say. Um there's a lot of talk about universal basic income um and, and that seemed to be the conversation but um as we know we live in a very very different world um today and I'm I'm sure we're going to to hit on that but so I, I think my first my first question is how 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 do you, how are you viewing what's happening with the the George Floyd killings and then the the protests and and the riots, like how do you view um, what is going on right now in America and across the world?
0: Hmm. Well, that's a that's a big question, scaling out from a particular event, which was uh, terrible, terrifying, right? horrifying in uh, in many respects, to uh, the broader implications. And as you know, uh, it was a particular event, though that pushes people's principled buttons and all of the big political issues, religious issues, uh, and so forth, and, uh, are, are triggered. So, in that particular case, I, you know, I've seen the videos, as, as uh, millions of people have seen, and it seems a very clear case of police uh, brutality, police overstepping the, uh, the mark. What exactly was going on in the officer's mind, I don't know whether it was uh, racism uh, as a contributing factor. Uh, but I'm, of course, you know, speculating that there is some element of that. And then mm-hmm. we do our further research uh, why the other police officers on the scene uh, did not step in. So the, the the initial officer seems primarily involved, but uh, he wasn't a solo agent. And so there are some at least passive Better's of the cause, and then we start to uh, to scale out. This is a this is a man uh, and uh, police brutality cases, and we do have a lot of anecdotal uh, evidence that uh, police overreact mm-hmm. and uh, use their police powers uh, more than situations are warranted. And any time that that happens, that uh, strikes our sense of justice. And uh, those of us around the world who are committed to a strong sense of justice, we find that incredibly uh, irritating. We know there's a background of uh, race relations. While I'm actually very optimistic about race relations in the United States, uh, I think we've made great progress over the last two centuries, and particularly the last two generations. Uh, whatever the amount of racism that's actually operative is uh, intensely irritating. And, uh, uh, you know, it's like a, a zero tolerance policy mm-hmm. is, uh, is the one that we, that we want to go for. So whether this is a, an example of systemic racism uh, or not, it nonetheless is, uh, is incredibly irritating. But then, of course, uh, we have a broader set of issues where we have a large number, at least it, I'm just going to speak from the American context of. Groups with all sorts of causes from all parts of the political spectrum and uh, a very active media that is more postmodern this generation than any generation previously. And they're always waiting for the right cause to come along to do what it is that they want to do and some of course have their talking points and they get their talking points out some people uh, have their action points some of them destructive some of them constructive so what you then end up with is the right ac- uh, the right event rather comes along at the right moment and it turns into a zoo
1: and that's and that's what we're seeing t- today i mean there's everyone that i've have- talked to every commentator that I've listened to, they're all in 100% agreement. Um, this was clearly police brutality. Um, he should be charged. He is being charged. Uh, everyone that I have heard and everyone that I've talked to clearly stand for all the peaceful protests that are going on across America. Yeah. As you said, um, we have a zero, there's a zero tolerance. You know, It's not like, oh, you know, we can tolerate some racism. But I think by by and large, as a as a nation, we have set up our our ideals to say we will not be a a racist country. But then, but then yeah. you bring in this. Let me just interrupt on on that yeah. point, just for for one moment.
0: That is, despite the terribleness of everything that's going on, you know, evidence of the great achievements we have made over the course of the last two centuries. Fifty years ago, you would not have had a zero tolerance policy. You would have had eighty percent of the population saying bad, twenty percent making excuses for it. A hundred years ago, those numbers would have been sixty forty. So, uh, in one sense, this is a, a sign of, uh, of a good thing.
1: But but that's not what that's not what people are saying. They're actually saying the the very opposite. I mean, they're for sure. I'm I'm listening to. Um, some voices that are that are African American that are of minorities that are saying, um, "No, this isn't this isn't a, a flag of systemic racism across you know our entire system." But by and large, the narrative that I I am hearing from all the way over here um, via media, via talking to friends, through the the, the conversations that I'm having, even one on one with people, is that. Um, America is uh, deeply racist. It's ingrained in in everything that we are. It was founded on evil racism, and that uh, that you know are the fact that I am a white male means that I have this white privilege that maybe I'm not aware of, but it's completely baked in by the fact that I was born into a white household, and right. and and so. so Yes. Let me uh, jump in again. I
0: mean, yeah, that that's a, a strong narrative. You hear it everywhere. Every element of what you just said is false. It's false. And it is false. Every, every element and every major concept built into that formulation that you very nicely summarized in a paragraph just now. All of that is false, but it is a powerful narrative that is promulgated by any number of intellectuals journalists and activists but, and but how can how uh, can you say that it's
1: how can you say that it's false I mean isn't that their their truth isn't that their experience don't mm-hmm. we have to uh, uh agree with it because if I don't agree with it if I say okay I I see your pain I see your suffering I understand the the generational systematic breakdown of the African-american population that happened through uh slavery in independent and if I don't then accept the latter part, which is saying, and I'm a racist because I'm white and I have privilege because I'm white, then it, don't, it only pr- further proves their point to say, well, see, you're, you're totally blind to it. So how can you sit there and say that everything that I just said is actually untrue?
0: OK, so now we're getting into some philosophical territory, right? The concept of truth, uh, who defines truth and under what circumstance are we? in a position right, to say mm-hmm. that things are true or not. Now, you know, initially, uh, they're gonna to have to be a ground rule. If we're going to say there is a narrative that says uh, 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 slavery existed, slavery was horrible, slavery had lingering effects, if we're going to make those claims, what's the status of those claims going to be? Are those claims true or not true? And if you want to, on the one hand, claim that those things are true, then you are committed to a notion of truth, objective truth, and universal truth. So it would be inappropriate if at some point along the line, someone else says, well, I disagree with your interpretation of the truth or this implication, or I want to uh, say there are these other factors that need to be taken into account, if at that point you say, oh, uh, that's just your truth, that's not my truth, then you are making an illegitimate move because then you can't go back and say that your initial claims uh, were universal objective truths. You'd have to just say, those are only my personal truth. So Look. right up front, people are going to say, am I committed to... There are truths and we can argue about what the truths are, or is it just going to be, you have your talking points. I have my talking points. Nobody really has the truth. And we're just going to sort it out, say on the streets.
1: So let me help, help me digest this. So if there's one group, and I guess it could be either group that looks at a set of evidence and says, this is a truth. This is the truth. This is absolute um, and lays out that argument. And you're saying that if someone else, comes along, they have the right to challenge that argument and say, "Well, I look at the the factual evidence, I look at the empirical data, and I can yeah. I can level an argument to say, well, there, it, it, there's a little bit more complex complexity to this situation. And now when the sure. first group sure. says yeah. when the first group says, "Well, hold on a minute, that's your perspective. this is my perspective, this is my truth." Then all of a sudden their truth just has become Ill- illegitimate.
0: Right well then you're saying that everybody's truths are equally illegitimate right including the initial claims that you were making
1: So then how can we have a, a dialectical conversation how can we have a have a conversation where we're actually able to reason and sit down and understand one another right. if 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 all of our perspectives are just you know subjective
0: right so this is right where philosophy the rubber meets the road uh, if one believes that all truths are subjective in the sense that you just uh, just uh, were articulating we're never going to have conversations and so right one measure of the problem that we are having right now with a large number of people not willing to engage in discourses to to uh, to, uh, to to give the other side a chance to or take the possibility that their way of thinking about things right now needs to be adjusted. If we have a large number of people like that, that is the sign, I would think, of a philosophical corruption, but uh, one implication of that is that we won't actually have debates and discussions about the issue. So, my view on this is uh, slavery was a, was a, is a historical fact. Right? It mm. really did happen. Uh, And then we could have lots of arguments about what counts as historical evidence, what counts as historical interpretation, the role of hypotheses, how we uh, compare hypotheses in terms of which ones are better or worse uh, in terms of explanation, uh, and uh, also the issues about the character traits that are necessary for people We're going to talk about complicated issues and issues that involve a great deal of controversy and pushing our emotional buttons. All of those are philosophically important issues that have to be dealt with if we're going to Hmm. take up. Slavery is a real phenomenon and it has a legacy and we need to be able to sort out our thinking. And uh, ultimately it doesn't matter, right? Whether you are uh, born wealthy or born poor, Born with this skin hue, born with that skin hue. Ultimately, we should be able to have a good discussion about that fact and the related facts, and sort out what the truth is.
1: So, I feel like there there are there are people who are who are trying to do that. There are people who are doing that, but but the argument then that's leveled from the other side is, well, you're doing that from a place of privilege. You're doing that from the place of being a. a whether it's a white male or any other position of power, it automatically makes your claim illegitimate because you're only viewing that world through your particular lens. And you've actually framed an argument that forces um, the other person to lose. So how do we how can we in that situation, how do we actually come to objective truth?
0: Right. All right. Good. So uh, privilege is one of those buzzwords that's uh, being used a lot in the last generation. For the most part, it is an anti-concept. That, that's, that's to say it's a concept or a word that's used to destroy or undercut other legitimate concepts. Now, there are privileges, right? Privileges right. are social advantages granted by some people to others, that's kind of within their discretion. So I don't know. Suppose I, 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 I belong to a a tennis club, and uh, one of the, the the options I have is I can bring a friend who's not a member to play at my tennis club twice a week. Right. So that's a, a privilege. In that case, the tennis club is granting that to me as part of my membership. Right. And 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 so on. But what is uh, Illegitimate about the way the concept is often used is that there are uh, lots of advantages and differences between human beings that are not privileges. So, for example, you know I'm uh, I'm six feet tall. When I was a teenager, I loved basketball, uh, uh, and I was really hoping that I would grow up to be about six foot six so that I could play professional basketball. So, someone though who is naturally born to grow up to be six foot six. Uh, compared to me, who is six feet, you know, that person has an advantage. He's six foot six, I am six feet, mm-hmm. but that's not a privilege, right? That is a natural advantage in that context that that individual has. So what has happened is that, uh, and I, 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 this is an illegitimate move, is that people will take any advantage for any reason and turn that into a privilege, Right. The idea then being that any differences between us really are just a matter of some people deciding that other people are going to get advantages with respect to other people. Or the idea might be that, uh, uh, to take another example, some people are wealthier than other people. If wealth just is a privilege, then what that means is that all wealth is just somehow a social granting mm. of an advantage to some people compared to other people. Other people just weren't granted this wealth somehow, and that's meant to undercut or obliterate the idea that some people, when they get their wealth, they earned it by their own efforts, right? So it's an earned value that they have. It's not a privilege that somehow they've been socially magically acquired. So that's a set of issues. So. One conceptual clarification will be anytime we're talking about advantages or disadvantages that people have, are those earned advantages? Are they natural advantages or are they, in fact, privileges that have been granted by some social authorities or not? Now, that's one element right built into what you're saying. Now, the other part of it, and this is the second part, was the, uh, the turning of everything into an ad hominem argument. Uh, That then is to say, uh, in case someone's not familiar with the language, instead of addressing the person's argument, what you do is you address a feature of the person that's not relevant to the argument. So to take a stupid person or to to, to take a stupid example, if you, Lucas, were to say that you think uh, 12 multiplied by 11 equals 132 and you laid out your reasons for that, and I just said, hey, uh, you know, that's the wrong answer. You're just a white guy saying that. Mm. So what I'm clearly doing is I'm not addressing your mathematical reasoning and assessing it in its own terms. I'm setting that aside and I'm focusing on your skin color, which is irrelevant to the quality of your mathematical reasoning. So anytime you see someone saying, as a right, white person, right, or as a male or as a European, Uh, If that feature is not directly related to the quality of the utterance that the person is making, that's an illegitimate move. But what we do have is uh, a large number of people who want to say, I'm not interested in having to deal with people's arguments. Uh, I want to find a way to short circuit anyone's argument by finding some irrelevant trait, but not one that I know that's going to have some rhetorical force against the person. So, to come back to our working example, right, of slavery, mm. the idea that, and this is the illegitimate tactic of people who have a certain stance with respect to slavery and certain policy implications that they want to have forwarded, they don't want to have a debate about competing theories about slavery and competing debates about the policy implication. So, one very cheap tactic, then, is to say, I can get... Anybody who uh, disagrees with me dismissed from the debate by using ad hominem tactics. I can say, oh, you're a rich guy. So therefore, your position, uh, your your argument just is invalidated and only poor people can have a position on this. Or your skin is not the right color. Therefore, you're not allowed to have an argument with respect to this issue. And that's just cheating.
1: So so because and, and, and is it that they're doing wordplay? They're taking... They're conflating um, ad, advantage, which is something whether that you're born with or born, you know, your parents gave you, whether it's wealth or um, an education. They're yeah. they're conflating advantage with 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 privilege. Um, yes, and, and then another thing, it, it seems like you're making uh, you're, it's boiling down to uh, power structures that it's not based on um, any sort of you know, I, I think that the argument that I hear when when you say, you know, 11 times 12 is 132, the, the argument on the other side is, you know, if using that as an example where we're actually talking about um, something that's a little bit more complex would be like, well,
0: I'm, that's I'm sorry just, here. The video broke just for a moment there. I, I didn't hear what the example was.
1: Um, when we take the, the example that you gave of 11 times 12 is 132. Ah, as a yes. white person arguing at that, it seems like the other side would say, well, you know, you're just saying that because, you know, you've come from this place of privilege and we need to re-examine that. And and then also, what, what, what I hear you saying with this privilege versus advantage, there's this video that's been going around about, a, you know, I think it's like a, a poverty kind of exercise where they take middle school kids. And, you know, if you're born with two parents, you know, take two steps forward. And, you know, so... The list goes on and on, and there's only a hundred dollar bill at the end, and and so it seems like you're also that there's also been an argument made that this is all a, a zero sum game, and that if uh, I yeah. have an advantage, yeah. that you don't have that advantage, and that that's unfair because you were talking about about money and wealth, that if I have wealth, whether it's I I worked hard for it or my parents worked hard for it and it was given to me, which is it you're saying is an advantage they're saying that's actually a, a corrupt value and you need to forfeit that because it's a, a privilege that other people don't have
0: yeah well, that's very good so that's a second element that's part of the the world that we're discussing the first part is a cognitive element or an epistemological element that we that says that there is no such thing as objective truth rather each group has its own right, truths or its own ways of looking at the world, and those are conditioned into uh, its members. And so,
1: Just based on where they were born, their parents, the, the language. Yeah, as a, right,
0: whatever, instead of as a human being with a mind that can assess facts objectively about the world. So that's, that's one set of issue. But yes, you're exactly right that another element of this worldview is Uh, this zero sum premise that there's a certain amount of stuff. And if some people get more, sometimes it's wealth, sometimes it's social standing or reputation. But if some people have more, that necessarily means other people have less. Mm. And that position is deeply baked into some worldviews. But what it then denies is that anybody has the capacity to create new wealth in the world uh and that if anybody has more wealth than anybody else that that wealth could somehow be earned so it is denying two very important facts about the world that wealth is created and that there's a justice point that's built into this that the people who do the actual creation of wealth deserve to have more wealth it's to uh, to deny that possibility and the justice attached to it.
1: So where, where I mean, but what's so what's so wrong about 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 that worldview? Like, what's so wrong about the fact that people want to help the disempowered, to to help minorities, to um, help? No, there's the nothing ecosystem. wrong with wanting to
0: uh, help minorities and help the disempowered, but if you are attacking the very notions that make it possible for the poor and the disempowered to become more powerful, uh, then you are actually destroying the very people that you think you are helping. And if you are going to do that by attacking people who have lifted themselves out of disadvantaged situations and out of poverty situations, then you are committing an injustice to them. So just on the zero-sum point, if you uh, you know consider... The way the world was 300 years ago, Mm. the early United States, if you go to the poorest uh, Southeast Asian nations right now and the poorest African nations right now, all of them are wealthier than average Americans were in 1700.
1: Wow. Now, again,
0: that's a historical fact. Uh, where did all of that wealth come from, right? So you go to the contemporary United States. So we are now 300 years later. Uh, You know, it's not the case that skyscrapers were just lying around and computer systems were lying around uh, or that all of those movies and music uh, that that we enjoy that adds riches to our lives and all of the cars were just lying around. Someone had to do a lot of thinking and inventing and take entrepreneurial risk and build up huge systems. All of that wealth was created, and that's a historical fact. So the question then is, if you are genuinely interested in helping the poor, and I'm I'm a little bit uh, uh, cynical about 30-year-old people who say that they want to help the poor but buy into any sort of a zero-sum premise. If you're 16 and you don't know anything about history, you don't know anything about economics, and somehow it just seems magical that some people have a lot of money and some people don't have wealth, well, that's one thing. You're just a kid still at that point, however intelligent you are. But I think there's no excuse for people who are university-educated and older who should know something about the world for saying that wealth creation doesn't exist, that everything is just a zero-sum distribution. Um, That's just an intellectual abdication. And at that point, I I, I don't think those people really are interested in helping the poor and helping the disadvantaged. I think what's going on is they have bought into a worldview. They have a philosophy. They have a political ideology. They are invested in that ideology. And they're going to preserve that ideology uh, no matter what its effect is on poor people.
1: So uh, you mentioned uh, two things. First was in the beginning of the question, you said something uh, to the effect of you're destroying the very by by attacking the wealthy and the idea that wealth can be created and saying that we're going to take away um, what what that side of the argument terms as a privilege, but you're saying it's really just an advantage from their hard work or their, the, you know, their height, by taking yeah. that away, that you're also taking away the very thing that could empower the poor.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because if you think of the lesson that uh, you know, the target group in this case, you know, so to take the, the stereotype of the poor black uh, uh, kid, Right in a terrible neighborhood, you go in and you tell that kid, the reason you are uh, in the situation you are in is because there's all these other people in other neighborhoods who have money and different skin color, and they've taken it from you and your people. And they have all of the power, and they don't like you, and they are making all of the rules so that you will stay exactly where you are and basically there's nothing that you can do
1: but is it isn't What's that the going argument to of to that kid isn't that the argument of gentrification that's what i've I've been hearing you know and I'm having these conversations they they come back with um well, it's probably because of gentrification in its' evident further evidence of Racism, where um, neighborhoods gentrify and and the the poor minorities are forced into bad neighborhoods. So, wouldn't you know? Isn't that the argument to say, well, that is true because you've been pushed to the margins of society? Well,
0: who's doing the pushing here? Right, and this is this goes back though to the point. If you are a young kid, it doesn't matter what your skin color is, what your what your wealth background is, what your education background is. Uh, do you think any young kid, if the kid has the freedom, can say, assess my situation, I'm in a pretty bad neighborhood here, but I can go for a walk and I can see that things are a little bit better three blocks to the south. I can see they're a lot better 20 blocks to the south, and that's where I want to be. Mm. And then to start thinking, what do I need to do in order to Mm. be able to do what it is that they're doing. It might start from a very simple thing like you know picking up your yard so you don't have trash. It might be a simple thing like taking a shower every day or two. It might be a, a simple thing like uh, paying attention and realizing uh, in school, realizing that uh, when you read a book you learn new things and developing habits in yourself. So the question is going to be what's the best lesson all of us can teach to that young kid? Uh, do those things. And you can move to that neighborhood in 10 years, that's three blocks down the road, and maybe even to the nicer neighborhood that's 20 blocks down the road. Uh, If you don't believe in that message, and and I think our our enemies really are the people who don't believe in that message, that's a philosophical position that they're taking, Uh, then you are never going to get out of that poor neighborhood. Instead, if you teach people the disempowering neighborhood, that you are a victim, that the forces of the world are trying to keep you in a victim state, then you are going to just set those young people up for for greater greater failure. So, you know, my view on uh, if you take gentrification, right, as a particular issue, um, uh, gentrification should be seen as a positive thing because then what you have is some people showing other people what's possible. So here is a somewhat derelict building, right? We come in, we paint it, we clean up the brick, we do nice things, and everybody else walks by and says, hey, wow, something that's falling into disrepair, that can be turned around, Mm. and I like that, and that's what I want to do. So I start with wherever I I am, even if I'm in a bad situation, I'm going to gentrify myself, metaphorically speaking, Mm. and so forth. So it should be an inspiration rather than a condemnation.
1: So you're saying it, it really comes back down to the individual that that individual has uh, has power. Power is not the right word that I'm I'm looking agency. for. Agency. Thank you. That that individual has agency to affect change yes. in their life, but but the narrative that I hear and I, I was having a conversation with someone in December, and the conversation started off with, um, you know we're, we're not individuals. We're just individuals that we're not, we're not unique beings, but we are just, you know, subsets of the group that we live in. Where, where do all of these, where do all of these ideas come from and, and where do they all lead? Because it seems like really, really great things like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I am just, you know, the makeup of (laughs) my, my culture but it they seem innocent, but where do where does this all lead? Yes, all right, so that's that's also very good. So now we're introducing
0: clearly a third element in the package, right? The first element was there is no objective truth or objectivity possible. It's all just subjective uh, things that one happens to believe for whatever one. The second element is there is no wealth creation that everything is a zero-sum distribution according to uh, unfair power dynamics. And the third element is that there is no individuality, there is no agency, there is no self-empowerment. Instead, one is an aspect of the group or a representative of the group, or one is some sort of a collective being.
1: Mm.
0: Now... Now, that that's exactly to I uh, uh, in identifying right what the issues are, but yeah, we have three elements now that are coming together into into uh, a package. So uh, now the the follow up question then is you know, where does that come from? Well, there's a, in many cases there's a lot of high theory behind it. There are a lot of psychological theories that have argued that the human mind is uh, is plastic, and perhaps say in the example of language formation. Uh, when we are young, it just uh, we're in a surrounding language culture, and the language culture is just glommed onto our brain, and we learn to think the way our, our group language right, thinks. There are uh, uh, sociological versions of this. You know, Marxism is one but not the only one. The people are born into economic circumstances, but economic circumstances shape your being and your way of thinking about the world. Uh, And there are also, of course, racial versions of it, that there are different racial groups and they each have their own biological package. And so your your thinking and your feeling and your way of being is merely kind of an expression of an underlying biological racial type. So there are lots of theories out there that deny individual agency. So the, the other side of the debate, though, is a, is a position that says, no, volition is a real phenomenon, right? Uh, we do have the psychological capacity to turn our minds on, to, to make a decision. I'm going to think about things or I'm just going to be lazy to direct our attention. I'm going to think about this thing as opposed to thinking about that thing. Uh, and also to 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 act. I'm I'm sitting here thinking about a particular thing, whether I you know stand up or whether I stay seated down. That is an individual agency. I can decide to stay seated or or get up, and that's a real phenomenon. Now, that's of course to take us into the free will versus determinism, right? Or volition versus various kinds of conditioning debates, and those are deep debates in in philosophy. So. The point, though, is going to be that exactly, right, that part of the activist package that we are hearing a lot, and a lot more in this last generation, are people who have very strongly bought into denying individuality and denying agency. And to the extent that you buy into that as a very general principle, that has a lot of implications. So, when you come to the people whom your heart initially goes out to because they are not in a very good situation, uh, that's going to be very upsetting. And we know that sometimes people are in bad situations because of past historical injustices. That's going to make you very angry. But you, because of your commitment to the lack of individual agency, You're going to not believe in the only tool that's going to help people get out of that. You're not going to say, what I need to tell these people and help them realize is that they can take some significant measure of control over their own lives, change their thinking, change their behaviors, do certain actions that are going to get them out of their bad situations. You're not going to believe in any of that. Uh, Instead, you are going to uh, engage in what will, in fact, be counterproductive
1: methods. So uh, uh where i mean has has is this a new phenomenon the, both the the idea that we're we're just part of uh, a group and our identity and our language is just all baked in by our environment and also is it a new idea that we are individuals who have uh free will like when did i mean has for all time we've believed that we are individuals with free will and this is something new?
0: Yeah, no, the the individualism and uh, agency, free will point is much more strongly a product of the, the modern world. So if you think, for example, you know, most of human history, and now here we're playing amateur anthropologists, right, human beings were in tribal organizations, and uh, almost all tribes, this is an overstatement, but they had the idea that you know boys were born to do men's work, girls were born to do uh, uh, to, to do to do girls' work, and so already you're not really an individual; you are typed and conditioned right from day one in terms of what your social role is going to be. Mm-hmm. And also, we do know that those economies were largely subsistence economies. So there's some understanding that yes, tools need to be made, wealth needs to be, weapons need to be made, clothes need to be made, but the idea that we can create abundance was was certainly not not a notion. Uh, as economies became more sophisticated, we had empires that would rigidify into feudal systems. But again, what's noted there is a, you know aside from the sexual uh, division, boys do boy things, girls do. Things you have over many, many generations the idea that you're born into a certain class and your whole life is largely mapped out in terms of your class membership. You're a serf or you're a peasant. Right Or your, your dad is the duke and you're the firstborn son, you are going to be the next duke. right Or you're a little girl, you are going to be married off to somebody and you start to produce babies. So the idea of individual agency and volition, again, is extraordinarily limited. It's really not until you get to the renaissance of the 1400s, the long 1400s, uh, that you start to see particularly in the commercial republics of Florence, especially, and in in Venice, the idea of of individuality, that you can think for yourself, uh, create yourself into the kind of human being that you want to, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you see, you see, see this in the artists, particularly artists like Michelangelo, who start to assert themselves that I have my own vision. Uh, and then as feudal structures started to be challenged in those places, and people started to see that, People could make a wealth, uh, make a lot of money if they uh, uh, took certain paths and made certain choices in life or that we can take charge of our political system as those early republics did and make a difference. Uh, The the rules of the game are not from God or from feudal privilege uh, in time memorial. We make the rules because we control the political system as small R Republicans. So it's a relatively new idea that I can be in charge of my thinking. My, my dress, my style, my interests, my economic destiny, my political destiny, uh, you know, at most 500, maybe mm. uh, or seven, six 650 years or so. But of course, uh, that's a blink of an eye in historical time. And the battle has been deep and increasingly sophisticated over the course of the last centuries.
1: So one, one thing that I hear, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, and you touched on it again, it's this idea that um, you know, Africa and uh, I think you said South Asia, they have more more wealth, less poverty than America did in the 1700s. Um, yes. uh, but there's an argument that is, well, that's a bad thing. In, in the fact that, well, that's because of colonialism and that's because um, the white man has come and enforced capitalism upon these yep. people. And it's actually better that they, Stayed in their their cultural tribal um, identities, and it's actually this you know whitewashing.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a, a set of propositions. There's a grain of truth in a couple of them, but the overall package is uh, is is quite bad. I think you know, anyone who looks at the historical record and says that you know, the the average African now is in a worse situation than an average African 600 years ago. I mean, that's just astounding historical ignorance and i don't think there's any excuse for that so you know if you go back uh, you know 500 years ago uh and you look at just you know one portion of africa uh life expectancies were extraordinarily low in the the 20s or 30s right so you know just take the contemporary Congo, and then all of the the, the, the countries on the, uh, the the southern part of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, there, right, going on down to, to Angola, so now life expectancy is more than twice, right, what it was just a few centuries ago. So, anybody who wants to say, "Oh, that's a bad thing," um, I'm sorry, that's just uh, just just ignorance. the 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 amount of music uh, and and economic opportunity that's available to people now. Contemporary Africans compared to five or six, uh, four or four or five or six centuries ago, astoundingly different. And it's also that the vast majority of those states were uh, slave states. I mean, all of the slaves that uh, were exported to the Arabian nations and across the Atlantic, they were uh, a vast majority ninety nine percent of them. Uh, other African tribes conquering and taking people as slaves to be sold to the Arabs and to be sold to the the Europeans engaged. So the fact that a significant portion of the economy was a slave economy and, you know, something like 75 or 80 percent of the people living in those Uh, Those countries were living as slaves, whereas now there still is slavery, but it's a small minority of the population and mostly underground. Anybody who says that's not an improvement, again, I think is uh, historically ignorant, right, at best. Now, the second part of what you are saying is the legacy of colonialism. And, you know, clearly colonialism is an extraordinarily mixed record. Uh, And I think one needs to get nuanced pretty quickly. Uh, you know the, the historical track records of British colonialism compared to, say, Portuguese colonialism and uh, Spanish and German and French colonialism. Uh, those are those are very mixed records. The ones that I know the most about, you know, growing up in Canada and living most of my career in the United States, is the legacy mostly of, of British colonialism. So you know, then you can say, obviously, the British did all sorts of bad things. Uh, in their colonial empires all over the, all over the world. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, the British did all sorts of good things, right, all over the world. So if we consider Hong Kong right now, so you're living in Hong Kong right now, you know, do we want to say to the Hong Kongers right now, you know, it's really so sad that the British colonialized you, you know, a century ago, And in that case, it seems to be pretty ridiculous. You know, obviously, the British did some bad things in Hong Kong over the course of the last 120 years or so. But Hong Kong is a magnificent accomplishment. And part of what made it a magnificent accomplishment was precisely that the British came in and set up certain institutions. And uh, those institutions uh, made Hong Kong uh, able to do very good things. The, the, The record of British colonialism, I think, in the Middle East um, before and after World War II, that's a much more mixed with a lot of terrible things that are going on. British uh, in South Africa, again, a much more mixed record, right, and so forth. But, you know, the example I like to to give here is the example of Botswana, if we're going to focus on Africa, for example. So, I like to, to look at Botswana, which is a landlocked Southern African nation, mm-hmm. and uh, its neighbor, uh, uh, Zimbabwe, another uh, landlocked southern African nation. And uh, both of them were uh, colonies right, uh, of the British right, up until the 1960s or so. Uh, both of them similar histories, tribal mix of uh, natural resources. Actually, the Zimbabweans have slightly better natural resources. Zimba, Botswana is mostly Kalahari Desert, uh, if you look at the you look at the geography, but both of them achieved independence right from the British. So everything then is pretty much the same, same history, same mix of tribes, religions, natural resources, colonial history and so forth, both achieve independence. What the Zimbabweans decide at that point is we are going to effectively stop doing everything that the British wanted us to do. And we're going to import a different ideology. Mm. So uh, you know, long story short, they decided that they were going to become Germans of a certain sort and become Marxist revolutionaries. And so they, uh, uh, they, they uh, became a, a kind of Communist socialist state. But what the Botswanans did was to say, after they got rid of the British, just to say, we think the British institutions are common law, education, markets, and so forth, pretty good. And we're going to take ownership of them and be self ruling and so on. And we're going to continue, in effect, to do things the British way. So what we have is almost a perfect social science experiment where one country says we're going to use British institutions, the other says we're going to use imported German institutions and uh, Zimbabwe became a basket case and Botswana became one of the richest, if not the richest, Southern African nation. And my understanding is if you look at the current numbers, the average Botswanan right now is about eight times as rich as the average Zimbabwean and lives more than 12 years longer than the average Zimbabwean does. So, you know, wow. we can debate the merits and demerits of colonialism, right? Absolutely. But to say that colonialism makes everybody a victim, and uh, that, I think, is a huge historical overstatement and a, and a disservice. Sometimes uh, uh, colonies bring good ideas. And not all colonialism is important for at the point of a gun. Sometimes it's a, a mixture of voluntary import-export that's going on. So,
1: that is all that we have for part one of this two-part episode with Dr. Stephen Hicks. Stick around for the episode, next episode where we are going to be talking about you know, the fruit of radical Marxism, and we're going to continue that conversation right over into the next episode. I love hearing from you and answering your questions. If you have a question from this episode or any other episode, please WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. That's one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. And I look forward to hearing from you. Remember, I'm Lucas Grobot, You are a changemaker. So go out and own the future.